Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, I'm Dave. I'm from Warwick and just got off the plane last night from Tasmania. Been on a holiday with my wife, Sarah. Uh, we, we went down, uh, we've been married 25 years this year and uh, we found it strange being on holiday, just the two of us without our three sons. And we thought about, oh, this might have been a while since we've done that. And we actually realised we haven't been on a holiday, just the two of us, without our three sons for over 22 years. Um, so it's been good to come back and have a refreshing time on a holiday with the wife of my youth. I wonder how you're going with your New Year's resolutions. We're a couple of weeks in to the new year. How are you going with your New Year's? How are they working out for you? One of my New Year's resolutions this year was to finish a book a week. Week one went really well. I was on holidays. Week two, well, it's January 14 today, and I'm still 80 pages from finishing my second book, and I'm still on holidays. I just, uh, so I'm not sure how I'm going to go with that New Year's resolution. I've got some better resolutions, though, for this year, and they're ones that I've shamelessly flogged from last year. I want to tell you about them. Last year, I resolved to learn to be loved by Jesus. It turned out to be a good one. Difficult, though. And that was surprisingly, so surprisingly good. I'm using it again this year with another one. In 2024, I want to learn to be loved by Jesus, and I want to learn to love like him. I want to learn to be loved by Jesus and I want to learn to love like him. What about you? What are your good New Year's resolutions for 2024? For those of you who follow Jesus, I wonder what you want Jesus to do in your life this year. And for those of you who might be trying to work out who Jesus is, I wonder what you're planning to do with him after you hear about him in church in the Bible. One book I started a few years ago, every year I try and read more books and fail dismally. I started this book and didn't finish. Uh, you might know why. It was called Far From the Madding Crowd. Has anyone read that? Steve has. It's set in rural England. I don't know when. It's in the olden days. And the author in that story shows us three very different perspectives, but they're all from the same story. The first is the perspective of a shepherd, the second a wealthy farmer, and the third a soldier. And all three perspectives are very different, but they all focus on one character, another character. You know, it's a, it's a compelling, stunning young woman, beautiful woman, at the centre of the story. It's interesting how the book works because of these three different perspectives on this one person. You might know movies like this, right? Have you seen the film Dunkirk? It tells the same story about the same event, but from a number of different perspectives. A true story viewed through the eyes of different people. Well, I don't know if you've noticed in John chapter 2 and 3, uh, this master storyteller, John, in his gospel, one of the first followers of Jesus, John, he shows you three very different perspectives on the same story in his biography of Christ. The first scene happens by day. Did you pick it up with Jesus in the temple with one man taking the initiative? The second scene happens by night with another bloke taking the initiative. And the third, this is a bit harder to see and pick up, 
The third happens outside of time with John himself taking the initiative and talking through the camera directly at you. Did you hear that in the reading? All three perspectives are very different, but they all focus on one compelling character, not a stunningly beautiful woman, although we'll see another woman like that next week, but they're all about God's offer to do a surprising new work in your life in Jesus. I want to say to you today, Jesus is at the centre of your story in 2024. And the sooner you see Jesus at the centre of your life, the better, although not necessarily more comfortable, the better your life will be. Jesus is the one who says, I have come that you will have life and life to the full. And that's true for you in 2024. And I think God wants you to see that. So three scenes today. Let's dive in. We'll see how we go. In scene one, uh, we're in John chapter two, and it's just after uh, Jesus goes to a wedding. I don't know if any of you are watching The Chosen on Netflix. Uh, They do a great portrayal of Jesus going to this wedding at Cana in Galilee. You can check it out in John 2. He's just done that, and it was his first sign, right? Perhaps you know the story. He turned uh, washing jar water uh, into 600 litres of top-shelf wine, a taste of the rich, full, eternal life that he's coming to bring. But Jesus did that kind of behind the scenes at the wedding. Everyone else cheered on uh, the MC for his job, but it was actually Jesus who did the miracle. Most people missed the miracle maker among them. Most people miss the miracle maker among us. But today in this first scene from verse 12, as it was uh, so well read to us, there's no missing Jesus anymore, is there? Did you notice the Jewish leaders in the first two chapters, they're wandering around looking for their Messiah, waiting for him to turn up, and Jesus in this episode comes straight to them. He goes to their place. He goes to their capital city, the big smoke Jerusalem and Jesus comes to their temple that's the place where they longed for God himself to turn up and live amongst them it's the busiest time of the year and John tells us twice if you're reading carefully the bookends of this scene why does he tell you something twice well you want to notice when you're told something twice it's the Passover it's the most important date in the Jewish calendar in their religion And they remember in the Passover where God's people celebrated their dramatic deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And they were led by old mate Moses, remember, uh, many hundreds of years earlier. They remembered the angel of death passing over their homes that were marked with the blood of the sacrificed Passover lamb. And they rejoiced in remembering how God had slaughtered the firstborn sons in the Egyptian home so they could be free. They were led out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, saved to be God's people and to live a new life. Passover reminded God's people that salvation was for them, but it also brought condemnation for those who are not God's people. You see, while it had been rescue for the Jews who simply trusted in the Passover lamb, 
It was judgment for the Egyptians, wasn't it? Salvation and condemnation, salvation and judgment being brought about by the one event. Salvation and judgment brought about by the one event. Both determined by how people respond to God's free offer of salvation. And so here we are at the Passover festival, the feast. And Jesus comes to the temple, the house of God in verse 14, if you're following in your Bible. And you see, you heard what he finds there in the outer courts of the temple. And you see how Jesus reacts, right? It's, it's almost, but not quite, your little brother losing the plot at the Monopoly table on the holidays. The problem isn't the selling of animals to be sacrificed. That was actually helpful to all the pilgrims who were coming to the city for the festival. And, uh, and, the prob- and these money changers did charge inflated prices to take advantage of people. But that wasn't the main problem. Nor was it that they were exchanging currency. Out-of-towners needed money to be changed to pay the temple tax, even if they were overcharging like an Australian supermarket. We know about the overcharge. That's not the main problem either. You see, it's not what they were doing that so much riles up Jesus. It's where. Here are these Jewish people taking up the only space in the temple reserved for outsiders, for non-Jewish people, for people they call Gentiles. Guess who they were? people like us the outer courts were supposed to be the place of the gentiles so they could come in but the greed of god's people was getting in the way of others coming to the lord's house and so they turned this place meant for gentiles like you and i to come in and pray into their own shop front now that's what greed does in god's people doesn't it Greed steals from what others could have. Greed doesn't just take from what others have. Greed steals from what others could have. Greedy religious people steal something far more valuable than money. The opportunity for needy outsiders to come in and know God. I think... What a terrible thing it would be for me for my greed to rob others of their opportunity to know the living God. Look at what happens in verse 15. How does Jesus react? There's not a monopoly board on the table. In verse 15, he makes a whip out of cords. He drives them all out of the temple courts. He scatters the coins. He overturns the tables and says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus goes full throttle. It's almost beast mode, but only almost, because this is entirely righteous anger, isn't it? There's nothing animalistic about Jesus. There's nothing uncontrolled in Jesus. His is far cooler and clinical anger than just rage. Jesus is bringing righteous judgment. It's why in the Bible, in the New Testament as well as the old, as well as the old, the prospect of falling into the hands of the living God is far more terrifying than falling prey to a brown snake, like you could do out at Warwick, 
or falling prey to a shark like he could, could, could do down here or find a web spider down south or a stonefish in a creek up north. It's far more terrifying than COVID or losing your job this year or even a loved one. And this is why our fellow Australians need to know the Lord too, isn't it? What a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. This is Jesus showing his blade. This isn't just the angel of death like in the Passover, but the Lord himself showing his steel. Because God's anger burns against sin that damages other people, doesn't it? Especially against the sin of religious hypocrisy, harming others in the name of the God of love. And so this has got to be a warning to us, hasn't it? It's a warning to me as a pastor, to my elders back in Warwick, to your leaders, to your fathers and mothers, your uncles and aunties, your sisters and brothers here, to every Christian in the family of God. We're not just dealing with baby Jesus, all meek and mild. This is the real Aslan from Lucy's Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read that, great book, great series. Many of you have read it, haven't you? The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. What does Lucy learn about Aslan that we know in our world about Jesus? Jesus is not tame. We see it here. Jesus is not safe even, but Jesus is good. He's not safe, he's not tame, but he is good. Jesus isn't just acting in judgment here though. The story, this scene, reveals more about what Jesus is up to. For those of, us, uh, for those of you who might know the backstory in your Old Testament, I haven't read it for a while, I'm dusty, but this is Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. When the day of judgment that Malachi spoke of, when the Lord would come to his temple. And it's also Jesus fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, when there'll no longer be fraudsters in the house of God. And so because of those prophecies back then, the Jews expected the Messiah to come to the temple in judgment and clean it out. And look at what's happening. Jesus has come to the centre of their lives and is cleaning the whole thing out. Jesus has come to the centre of their lives and is starting to clean the whole thing out. Now, we're not sure if his first followers got it that day. In fact, we sort of get the hint that they didn't understand what was going on. There they are, they're watching all this going on, but it's not until later that they look back and remember the ancient psalm, zeal for your house will consume me, in verse 17. How could they know at this point that the passion of Jesus himself would ultimately lead to his undoing? That Jesus' own zeal would come to be the cause of his being consumed. What about the Jews? Well, they get there's something going on here, but they don't see who Jesus is showing himself to be yet. And so they ask for a sign, for proof of his authority. Driver's license, please, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't answer them straight out, do you notice? In verse 19, he surprises them. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They want a sign, but they get a riddle. They're confused. Verse 20, they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple 
and you're going to raise it in only three days? They take his figure of speech too literally, don't they? We've got to be careful to take parts of the Bible literalistically. It can lead to legalism, like with these guys. Anyway, Jesus leaves them hanging, although he's promising to reveal himself. They don't really want Jesus. They don't really want him. And they will discover that although we can toy with Jesus and pretend to ask him sincere questions, if we are just playing with Jesus, in the end, that will be embarrassing for us. But you notice, John, he gives you, if you're seriously looking, he gives you the inside scoop. In verse 21 he says, But the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. So John shows you what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking something physical, something concrete, something literally concrete, had some concrete in it, the temple, and he's applying it to himself, right? It's a metaphor. And this is Jesus' habit. As you go through John's Gospel and the other Gospels, he uses metaphors to talk about what he's doing. Last chapter, in chapter 2, he took the metaphor of wine, didn't he? Water into wine. New wine at a wedding. A metaphor for the abundance of new life that Jesus has on offer for you. That he is the ultimate miracle worker. That he can take the ordinariness of your life and make it something sweet and beautiful. And so here he uses the temple as a metaphor for his body. The temple was where God would come to dwell amongst his people. And here he is. The temple was where you went to do business with God in the ancient world. But soon, Jesus says, God's temple on legs will come to you. That Jesus will come to you so that you can have your life rebuilt if you let him. That's exactly what happened to the first disciples, isn't it? For John and James, the other fishermen, the tax collectors, to those who first responded well to this elusive, compelling, surprising Jesus. In verse 22, we read, after he was raised from the dead, these blokes recalled what Jesus said, and then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. What ultimately convinces them that God would be at work in their lives is seeing God at work in Jesus' life, especially his resurrection from the dead. A bloke whose life had been a mess once said, I love his quote, he says, I now figure that if any man could raise himself from the dead, I'll just do whatever he says. Verse 23, we read on, Now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. That sounds great. Jesus doing more signs, more people believing in him, or at least they seem to, because of the signs. But look at what happens in verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. I think in your translation it's better in each man. It's a deliberate word, in a man. Jesus sees through their empty religion. 
He actually, it's the same word John uses. They believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. See, Jesus knew them. He knows what's in a man and a woman. He sees the sinfulness of every human heart. And so by this stage in John's Gospel, are we getting a bigger picture of who we're tangling with in Jesus? In 2024... As you start your new year, in your life, we've got not just a builder who's good on the tools in Jesus, but also a builder who first knows how to use a wrecking ball. Because the still living and now resurrected Jesus is still not tame, he's still not safe, but he is, and he's not just good, he's wholeheartedly good. And here's the kicker in this text. Apparently, he knows you. He knows your public life, which we see here. He also knows your private life, which he sees at home. And unlike those you even live with at home, he sees your secret life. You know, I get up in the morning, I was thinking about this, I get up in the morning, first thing I see is usually my wife. And she knows me better than anyone else that I know, right? But even she doesn't know what goes on in my head and in my heart. Jesus does. There is no possibility of pretending to be someone we're not with Jesus. He knows what's inside each person. There we go. Scene one out of three. How are you going? We're up to scene two. It brings us to our second scene. The first happened by day in public with the disciples and Jesus taking the initiative. But the second scene happens at night. And it's not in public, it's in private. And it's not Jesus taking the initiative, but a bloke called Nicodemus. There's a Pharisee in verse one. A man named Nicodemus, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He comes to Jesus at night, verse 2, and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God went with him. John has just told us that Jesus knows what is in a man. And then there's this man. You see? John uses the word deliberately. Jesus knows what's in a man. Very next verse, here's a man. He sneaks into Jesus by night. Now, this is no ordinary man. Nicodemus is the model Jewish believer. He's a religious bigwig. The, the Jews love their scriptures, and he knew them better than anyone. So it's striking that this man comes to Jesus at night. He's sneaking around. Is coming in secret so others won't know. He thinks he's hiding. Even the most religious people can have a secret life, can't they? Even the most religious people can have a secret life. I was on holiday uh, reading the paper online, uh, reading Twitter or whatever it's called these days, and there's a a little story about Michael Caine. You know the British actor Michael Caine? 
and some films he's in. I think he was in Batman as a guest appearance. He did a cameo in James Bond, I think. Growing up, I watched Zulu, the film that made him famous as a young man. I think he watched it 7,000 times as kids before the internet. You know Michael Caine? Yeah. Michael Caine lived at home in London in an apartment with his mum for years when he was first discovered as an actor. And his mum, every Sunday, would dress herself up and take herself off to church, she said, or to see a cousin. This went on week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. But in her 60s, she was discovered, it finally came out, every Sunday she wasn't going to church and she wasn't going to see her her cousin. She actually had another son that she'd given birth to six years before she'd married Michael Caine's father. Michael Caine, for all those years, had a half-brother and never knew it. This woman, because of her guilt and shame, had kept this secret until well into her 60s. What a tragedy. When Michael Caine finally discovered what had happened, he got to know his half-brother and build a beautiful relationship with him. We can be greedy. It strikes me that we can be greedy not just with money. You see, there's not just money that we can hold tightly to, is it? It's not just things that we think are good that we can be greedy for. We can be greedy with our guilt and our shame. And those things, when we're greedy with them, can rob others of joy as well. Do you see? So here's Nicodemus doing something that would be scandalous amongst his peers. He's got this secret. He comes to Jesus at night and there's a double meaning here. Nicodemus coming under the cover of darkness. And the whole conversation shows that when it comes to God's kingdom, Nicodemus, he's well and truly in the dark, isn't he? We see this from his first question. Nicodemus thinks he's sized up Jesus. He reckons he's worked out Jesus. Maybe you think you've worked out Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He says, you're a teacher from God. That's who you are. All the signs point to it. But Jesus' reply rocks his inner world. In verse 3 he says, I tell you, mate, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. We have all these images in our minds about Jesus, don't we? And our culture has all these stories about Jesus and at Christmas time again. All sorts of stuff about baby Jesus, some of it helpful. But have you ever read a gospel and realised that Jesus is far from a polite conversationalist? Like, would you invite him to a dinner tea for a polite conversation? You wouldn't, would you? Jesus is too good to pretend. He's not into small talk, unless it's to get to the heart, as we'll see next week. Jesus knows what's in a person. And he knows what's in this man's heart. He say, it's like he says to Nicodemus, you think you've got me sized up? Well, let me tell you, the kingdom of God, you can't see it in the darkness unless you're born again. Conversation with Jesus can be a risky business if we underestimate 
who we are dealing with. Jesus is being cryptic here, deliberately so. He's making a wordplay for Nicodemus. There's another double meaning going on. It doesn't work so well in English, in our translations, but when he says born again, it can also be translated born above, from above. So Jesus is saying that to see the kingdom here, you need to be born from there. Born from heaven to see the kingdom on earth. Born from above. Nicodemus misses it. He's still in the dark. He's still grappling with this very frightening, and if you think about it, it's a frightening image of adults being literally physically born a second time from their mother's womb. You can't unsee that image. That's where he's at. So Jesus puts it another way for him. In verse 5 he says, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. This time Nicodemus should get it because Jesus is painting the picture from his Old Testament in Ezekiel where God promised to wash his people from their sins like with clean water and where God promised to give them a new spirit, a new heart. See, Jesus knows that our hearts have turned away from God and chased other things. I wonder for you, as you reflect on last year, what were some of those things you were chasing? Jesus knows we all deserve God's judgment, not just those Jewish leaders. He knows that our hearts are like compasses that don't point north, that our spirit levels aren't level. We're like a GPS that always takes us to the wrong place. If you come out to Warwick and come to my place and you use Google Maps, you'll end up on the, falling over on the side of a quarry. It gets it wrong every time. I was in Tasmania with Sarah and we went to a little town called Sheffield. Sheffield has two main streets and we'd been going to the same coffee shop for four or five days in a row every morning. It was our habit. But this later morning, it's time for Sarah. Uh, time for me to, uh, sorry, Sarah to drive, and she took us the opposite way to where the coffee shop was. I asked her what was going on, and it turns out uh, I was reminded again that my wife's hopeless at navigation. All right, she can't. She doesn't have a compass in her head. She can't work out which way is north or east or west or south. If you're thinking, oh, see, Dave's being a bit rough on his wife. Well, that's an illustration of what I'm like with my life. Without Jesus as my true north, I have no idea what I'm doing. My life's a mess. I make all sorts of wrong decisions. People look at my life and think, well, there's a guy, he's middle-aged, he's made it to middle-aged, he's still married, he's got three sons, stable job, he looks like he's got it together. No, no, I take wrong turns all the time. My wife might have a busted compass in her head. I've got a busted compass in my heart. In fact, Jesus says, our hearts are so busted by our sins, we can't even choose God. And that unless God does something, we will not see his kingdom. We need to be born again, Jesus says. It's not something we can control or muster up for ourselves Jesus says it's like the wind. You can't predict it. Now, we just need to ask the BOM about that. Even nowadays, the weather guys can't pick the wind. 
Do you want to be part of God's kingdom in 2024? You can't dictate terms or set the agenda with Jesus. You can't predict what Jesus might do in your life this year if you let him. Nicodemus still doesn't understand that here, but there's hope for him, and you can read about him later in John's Gospel. But here he is, he wonders how all this can be possible. Notice Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, and yet who's teaching who here? The one man uniquely qualified to speak to every person about heavenly things. Verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus speaks from his own experience. He reveals heavenly things because he's seen them for himself. He's from heaven and he's descended from there. And John let us in on this right from the beginning of his gospel and the biography opened by telling you Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God in the flesh actually. Jesus is the one who created all things. Jesus is the light in the darkness of your life. He is the son who has come to make the father in heaven known to you. Jesus in 2024 can reveal God to you. Not so you just fall into the hands of the living God at the end of your days, but so you'd receive the life-giving work of his hand in your life this week, this year, now. But there's a shock here. There's a surprise for Nicodemus. The way this miracle worker we're bringing all this about is not what anyone expects. In verse 14, Jesus quotes from Numbers, that story in the wilderness, just as Moses lifted up the snake, the son, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You might remember the story of the Old Testament people of God. They're in the wilderness. They're whinging. God judges them. Moses prays for deliverance. God provides a snake, a bronze snake, to be lifted up on a pole. A moment of judgment isn't it? But it's a moment of salvation too for everyone who simply does what? What do they have to do to live? Just look. Just look up. Look up and live, right? It's like that old Energex ad in storm season. Do you have it down here? Look up and live, right? That's all they had to do. Look up and live. So Jesus, so here, Jesus was saying that he too will be lifted up. And it's a moment, it's going to be a moment of ultimate judgment, he's saying. Not on a pole, but it will be on a cross, we discover in the Gospels. And Jesus won't be lifted up in honour, but in shame. See, for you and I in 2024 to receive a new resurrected life someone who actually knows what he's doing in life needs to die for our busted up old one for me to become generous someone needs to die for my greed don't they in order for you to go grow patient sister someone needs to give an accounting 
Someone needs to pay for the deadly consequences of your haste, the way you treat people hastily in your life. In order for us men to be properly contented in our masculinity and to learn to be thoroughly gentled in our treatment of women and to come to discover with great wonder how to properly and playfully love like little children, because that's what Jesus promises to teach men, then some good man who's shown us how to do all that needs to die in place of this old man, doesn't he? Someone needs to shed his own blood. God in the flesh needs to deliver us from our slavery to sin. Someone needs to let his life, his good life, be torn down in order to build in me and you a new life that will live forever. That incredible moment has now happened for us, hasn't it? We look back to the crucifixion of Christ. There was judgment, but there also is salvation. All in the one event. It's the moment of Jesus' greatest glory, actually, when his character, when his goodness, when his glory is most revealed, if you'll see it, not just to Israel, but even to Gentiles like us. And so, Jesus says, whoever just looks up to him can have eternal life, real life, a fuller life, life to the full. I take it Nicodemus, Nicodemus or we, we take it, he left that night confused. He walked away unsure. Jesus was happy for him to be left wondering for a while. The great life rebuilder, it was still concealed from Nicodemus. What does it mean that the Son of Man would be lifted up, he, he would have thought. How can I be born again? What is this water and spirit business from Ezekiel? But as for Nicodemus, so too for you. If you wonder what Jesus means, if you come to him and look for him and look up to him sincerely, he will show you. And verse 16, there's this great summary, isn't it? The most famous verse in the Bible, perhaps you've heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We come to scene three. You're thinking, oh my gosh, we've only done two out of three. We'll leave scene three. I've gone on long enough. But let me just finish. You can check it out. You can read more about it at home. Let me just finish with some reflections. A little story and then a quote from my favourite author from a book I have finished. About eight years ago, it was Christmas time. We have a family tradition in the Bailey family. We have a massive lamb roast. I was hooking into the shank I've always had really strong teeth and I busted my front tooth. Broke off the cap, obvious as. I was embarrassed about it. I was so embarrassed about it that for year after year I didn't go back to the dentist. I didn't go to the dentist to get it fixed. I don't like dentists. I'm on long service leave. I've now got time. I have no longer got the excuse that I'm too busy to go to the dentist. So in November, I went back to the dentist. I went to the dentist and finally, after all these years, I got my tooth capped. Who cares, you say? 
That's great, Dave. You got your tooth capped. When he capped my tooth, this dentist in Warwick, he said, David, you can no longer bite down on apples. You can no longer chew into a lamb shank near the bone. You've got to be careful. You'll, you'll break the, the cap off your tooth if you're not. And so that, okay, that's a shame. So I go on for a few weeks. I'm very careful with my teeth. But what I've realised is my hands have never been the same. I've chewed my nails all of my life. But my nails look the best they've ever looked. I can't chew my nails anymore. And it's wonderful for me. I went to get my teeth fixed. I went to the dentist, the place I didn't want to go, a man who could help me. But then I discovered he also fixed my fingernails. If going to some dentist in the back streets of Warwick could have such a surprising result in my life, imagine what going to the great physician of the soul could do with my life. You know, I've been following Jesus long enough. I've worked out that he will always surprise you. When we go to Jesus, finally, reluctantly, and offer him our guilt, we're surprised to find he also deals with our shame. If you go to Jesus and ask him to deal with your anger, you might be surprised to find you become more content. If you go to Jesus with your impatience, you're an angry man or an angry woman, and you go to him and you finally take to him your impatience, you might find that some significant relationship in your life improves dramatically. If you take to Jesus your greed, you will find that he will replace it with joy and all of a sudden you become more generous. I met Kath and Kim this morning. You're Kath and Kim. And she shared, Kath shared some of her story and she said, David, one day I prayed for a friend and God surprised me, he gave me Kim. I've got that right? Oh, I'm sorry, I got Kath and Kim the wrong way around, sorry. What are you expecting Jesus to do in your life in 2024? If you're planning on ignoring Jesus again this year, maybe that's been your custom, then watch out, Jesus isn't safe. If you've got plans for what Jesus should be doing in your life this year and you've got an agenda for him, then watch out. He's not tame. If you're here today and you're so struggling in your life that you're flat out already in 2024, just putting one foot in front of the other, and some of you are, then just you watch and look up and live. Jesus is at work in your life because he is good. I'm going to finish with a little quote from C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard of him. He writes some good books. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. 
And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised, are you? But soon, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Let's pray together by singing together our final song. I assume we're singing together. Let's sing.